Well, good evening, and welcome once again to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. As we come on the air tonight, the Ukraine remains under assault by President Putin. This unprovoked, unprecedented attack on a sovereign nation is unacceptable, to say the least. If there's any benefit from this outrageous invasion, it has awakened the world to how fragile democracy is and that evil is alive and well. The parallels to Hitler and 1939 are unnerving, to say the least. It has also exemplified courage and the real nature of leadership. So the next time you hear one of our feckless politicians referred to as a leader, think of President Zelensky in contrast. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. Things in a different way, and God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Yeah, we're living on the Well, tonight we again discuss mental health and veteran suicide. We talk about this topic a lot, and we must not and cannot stop talking about it as long as a veteran decides to end his or her own life in desperation. The acronym PTSD has been used too often as a label and a blanket explanation for our veterans who suffer from the real culprit, moral injury. The reality is that in order to provide protection required for a sovereign nation, a strong military is necessary. A strong military establishment requires equally strong men and women willing to put their lives on the line to preserve our freedom. We train these people to go into harm's way and, if necessary, to do the unthinkable. No one is prepared for the fallout of doing or perhaps simply witnessing something which is so antithetical to the American ethos that our conscience and brain cannot reconcile the event. So these wonderful people return to the land of the free and the home of the brave far different than when they left. Depending on their experience, this reintegration can be tough and sometimes impossible. Now, some will dismiss them as damaged. Well, how dare you? I'm not talking about a dent in a car fender. These are the people who put their lives on hold so that we here at home could live secure in the knowledge that we are safe. And tonight, Carla Farrell, Community Engagement and Partnership Coordinator for Suicide Prevention at the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System, and he's going to tell us about VA's new initiatives to proactively reach out to our veterans, their families, and friends in their own communities. Pat Ciano of NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. NAMI's mission is to increase empathy and understanding of mental health afflictions. 
and of course our friend Larry Winters, Vietnam vet, mental health professional, author, and raconteur extraordinaire. But first, here are your dates of note for March. March 3rd is the Naval Reserve birthday. March 13th is K-9 Veterans Day. This date is the official birthday of the United States K-9 Corps, a day to honor their service. March 25th is Medal of Honor Day, a holiday to honor the heroism and sacrifice of Medal of Honor recipients for the United States. March 29th is Vietnam Veterans Day, a national holiday to recognize and honor veterans who served in the military during the Vietnam War. Veterans are often reluctant to seek help. The VA is developing new and innovative approaches to allow them to accomplish their mission. And part of that mission is to reduce the number of vets who decide that taking their own lives is the only way to rid themselves of their demons. Carla Farrell is new here, and he's charged with spreading the word and helping to destigmatize mental illness and help the Hudson Valley vets get access to the help that they need and have earned. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets, Carl. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. I've only been here about four months, so uh, still new to me, still a lot to learn. Okay, let's start with your, your military service. I joined the Army in 2005, and my uh, MOS or my job was a mental health specialist. So basically what that meant is that I worked for a social worker or a psychologist doing um, some mental health treatment, uh, some evaluations, both stateside in Georgia as well as in Iraq, where uh, I was deployed for 15 months. So I'm interested to know how you ended up with that MOS. When I entered the service, I didn't strongly have a desire to do the combat arms jobs like infantry or artillerymen. I uh, didn't really have the desire to jump out of airplanes or do any of that crazy stuff. So I was looking at like medical jobs or a track, thought, oh, maybe I, I'd like to help people and, you know, for non-physical uh, injuries is kind of how I thought about it. Family members of mine had struggled with mental health challenges. So that's kind of what drew me to my job. And, you know, kind of like most uh, soldiers, you know, be careful what you wish for. No idea what I was getting into, but it worked out fantastic. And as we know, that's a big part of uh, the care for military people, the struggles with what is commonly referred to as PTSD and also uh, military sexual trauma, uh, couple that with a physical injury and reintegrating into the norms of the civilian society can be quite a challenge. And I think for, for all of us veterans, reintegration from the military to the civilian world is different than what we expect it to be. So I got out of the military with a, a job. I was actually doing the same job, mental health specialist, but just a, as a civilian, working with a, a friend I deployed to Iraq with, you know, living close to my family, you know, with decently stable life. And it was still cha very challenging for me. And then let alone if you stack some of these other challenges like uh, mental health challenges, physical health challenges, jobs, housing, getting healthcare, all of those things, um, it can be really overwhelming. And whether a veteran is experiencing kind of some or all of the challenges, you struggles you mentioned, I mean, you know, the expectation is that like they, they should uh, should be successful members of our community and valuable members of our community. So when you transitioned out and you went to work, as you mentioned, with somebody that you were deployed with, was that in Colorado? 
No, I, I got out. Uh, I went to, to Maryland, so lived in Baltimore, then went to social work school in Baltimore, and then uh, ended up in Colorado in 2014, where I ran a community mental health program for veterans and family members. So I had actually never been to Colorado before my job. Never went to Georgia before I joined the Army. I never went to Hudson Valley, really, before I got a job here. So I moved to Colorado in 2014 uh, to, to run a mental health program for veterans and families at a community mental health agency. So we really served the whole community. Um, we weren't part of the VA, but we worked with them. A big thing that I saw was, you know, we provided great mental health care when somebody came in the office. But we had so many veterans um, that were just, some of them literally, I'd be caught dead before I went to the therapist, or here's 10 reasons why I'm not going to go to a therapist. Uh, you know, all of these kind of preconceptions of what therapy was, but more importantly that, this stigma uh, that there was something wrong with them, you know, kind of intrinsically, if they needed to go to a therapist, that they could do it by themselves. And so what that really led to led me to realize is that it's not just therapy that's the solution. It's how do we create a community where it's, you know, where mental well-being, emotional well-being is promoted and that people are, are willing to accept help if they need it, uh, which kind of took me into, you know, into public health, which is why I decided to go back to school at the uh, Colorado School of Public Health uh, with a focus on uh, you know, community health, mental health and veterans and suicide prevention. Also, while I was there, I was working uh, for what was called the Rocky Mountain MIREC for veteran suicide prevention. And what we did there was we just studied veteran suicide prevention. It was like a lab inside the VA where there's about 80 people focusing on just veteran suicide prevention. I was there for about three years working on a project that was really about how do we help make the community a better place for, for veterans so that they don't want to complete suicide, which is actually like very similar to, to my job here. But I wanted to get out of the research world. I wanted to get back in the field. I wanted to get back in contact with veterans working with, with my community. I kind of felt like I needed to help veterans a little bit more face-to-face, -face, a little bit more boots on the ground rather than simply just doing research, which brought me here in September. So is the military getting better at destigmatizing this type of thing because I've heard from other veterans that if you go for help in the military, especially with mental health, that um, you may be sidelined for a promotion or for a deployment. That's one of the reasons that I've been told is a major driver for veterans not to seek help in the military. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would say that when I was in 2005 to 2009, that, that stigma was huge, that most leaders would, would not seek mental health care, that they, if they were getting it, they would get it on their own and pay out of the pocket, but they were very afraid of some career consequence. I knew a lot of leaders that were, you know, drinking very heavily every night, you know, were angry all the time. You know, you just could see there's something really wrong here but they wouldn't get help because they were afraid of the consequence. And some of these folks, you know, were getting put out of the military when they got DUIs, when they got domestic violence charges, that their mental health was impacting their career. And more importantly, the decision not to get help was impacting their career. And I'd like to think the military has gotten better at it, and I'm pretty confident it has. But I think ultimately what it comes down to is the culture of that small unit, culture of the leader. Does uh, he or she say, hey, if you guys are having a problem, get help, there won't be consequences. And then sticks to that, it's these kind of individuals can make cultural changes. And that's probably where we're going to see the most benefit rather than simply a policy that says, you know, there won't be consequences. The culture of the unit has been a, uh, a real problem with, with, with many things. Racial discrimination over the years, uh, 
the investigation of military sexual trauma, you know, keeping it all inside the unit and um, investigating their own and sometimes uh, not getting the justice that the person, or in this case, the, the help the person deserves. And um, I hope that's changing. Yeah, no, I, I hope so too. And I think kind of the, the flip side of that is when there's a strong unit culture, health and resilience and safety can all, all be fostered. When I was in Iraq, there was one like military intelligence platoon where we probably saw like 40% of the soldiers in it for, at mental health, including leadership. And that was because like the, the platoon commander and the platoon NCO said, hey, like, we know you guys are having a hard time. This is a hard job. They brought us in. They brought the mental health team, introduced us. We had meeting with leadership. We had meeting with at the squad level. And then, you know, it really paid benefits. But then at the same time, there was another um, military intelligence unit that did not do any of those things. And they were the unit that had problems with other kind of uh, co-occurring issues like sexual assault, like drug and alcohol abuse, like people getting evacuated from theater. And, and I think a lot of that could be attributed to that poor unit culture. So it can really go either way. Along your journey, you became a Tillman scholar. What is that? So Pat Tillman was a, a star college football player, and then he became a, a safety with the Arizona Cardinals. And in, after 9-11, he and his brother joined the Army. They became Army Rangers, you know, which is an elite unit, and then they deployed uh, several times. And during his second deployment, where he went to Afghanistan, he was killed by friendly fire. And I guess people were starting to send money to his wife, you know, in honor of him. She wanted to preserve his legacy, so she um, decided to create a foundation which invest, invested in veteran scholars. The reason why that, you know, especially relevant uh, to Pat Tillman is he was getting his master's degree in history while being a professional football player kind of commitment to learning, his leadership, his commitment to service, and all of those values were able to live on through uh, these scholars. I had a, a friend who was an Iraqi refugee who joined the American Army as soon as he could, as soon as uh, they, his, he was allowed to. And I have uh, friends that were you know, company commanders or doctors or helicopter pilots, just these exceptional people. But more important, what's exceptional is their, their potential and their vision going forward. So I think that's probably the most exciting thing about the Tillman Scholars. It's just kind of an investment in in these veterans who can contribute. Um, so it's, it's, a great, it's a fantastic program, fantastic uh, leaders I've met. I feel very honored to be part of it. One of the folks that we've interviewed on this show is a Vietnam veteran um, and was actually uh, head of uh, veterans counseling at Four Winds, which is down in Westchester County. And people throw the term post-traumatic stress disorder around. And he said, really, the, the root of that whole thing is moral injury. And moral injury occurs when your conscience and your mind can't reconcile something you've seen, done, or, or had a part in because it was so antithetical to everything that you were brought up to believe is right and wrong. So here's my quandary. We have to have a military to protect us. And the, really, the, when you boil it all down, the goal of the military is to defend us and, if necessary, to kill the enemy. And regardless of what you do in the military, you're a part of that core mission. So in many cases, especially with the direct combat roles or the direct 
uh, enemy engagement roles, it seems to me that we actually have to set our people up to be in that position to sustain that moral injury because of the essence of what the military is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the military's role is one that uh, I think you know can produce, potentially produce moral injury, uh, even when people are are following the rules, are working on the you know following the mission. Now, it's a very kind of some of the work is antithetical to what you know we think humans can do or, or what we were raised to do. Um, you know, especially with respect to violence, even when justified, it still is uh, you know devastating to the people who are engaged in it. Um, we saw a lot of that in the work we did while in the service and and, and out. I think, I think uh, the military ought to do a better job of preparing people on how to how to sustain themselves in kind of the face of that. I wish I had an answer. I wish the military had an answer. Uh, I think a lot of that lies within like the, the individual leadership and the small unit culture. You see very different results. You know, depending on uh, on the units. Um, I th again, thinking back to my deployment, we had some units that, you know, were engaged in some of the most heavy combat, and and really, the the members of the unit weren't having the same same outcomes the, versus other units. We had some units with a lot of DUIs, with a lot of like suicide attempts, a lot of domestic violence. And we had some, some with virtually none, and and a lot of that could be attributed to the leadership, the mentoring, uh, the support. That, that these uh, soldiers, these men and women got when they came home and while overseas. So I have to wonder, what have you seen, if any, fallout, and I won't ask you to comment either way, of our withdrawal from Afghanistan? Like you said, you know, I probably can't really comment as a VA employee on you know, what another uh, government branch is doing or not doing, but I have heard from, from veterans, and then I think just as importantly from the Folks that I work with in the community who have a reach, uh, you know, beyond my own, that they're hearing a lot of veterans were tremendously impacted by that. Uh, I think about, you know, I was in Iraq and not Afghanistan, 2016, when ISIS was tromping through Iraq and capturing this and that, how devastating that was to me personally. And I, and I see the, a similar effect of, on, on the folks that served in Afghanistan, and, and I can say probably the veteran community overall. It was really devastating. Something needs to be done about it to support them. Yeah, it um, begs the question for many people, either part of that current environment or those of us that served during Vietnam era, and for that matter, all who served, you know, when you see stuff like this, you say, well, was it worth it? Why did I make that sacrifice, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a key question, and I would say regardless uh of when somebody served, and I would say even regardless of if somebody served, looking back on, you know, some time in their life or even their whole life, you know, asking was it worth it is can go a long way. And and whether that answer is, yeah, it was totally worth it or no, it was, we, we really can, uh, you know, we're the ones who tell our own story and that story that we tell impacts, uh, you know, a lot of other areas in our life or really how we can cope with adversity or overcome it. Right. Okay, so let's get on to your new role at the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System as the Community Engagement and Partnership Coordinator. I think you touched on this before when you said that um, folks who came into the office seeking help got help. It appears to me 
like in many other areas, the VA is going outside their walls and not waiting for people to show up for treatment. They're getting more engaged in the public arena and in the communities and making it easier for veterans to communicate and possibly then, you know, feel more comfortable seeking the help that they need. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think that's really a key change that we've seen with suicide prevention, like a clear clinical mission, like a number one priority, you know, of the veterans it serves. It also is saying, hey, you know, we need suicide prevention for all veterans. So we need to go out to the community where veterans are and help make the community a safer place um, for veterans. And and we've seen this in other areas of of health uh, and their mission is with homeless prevention or homeless uh, or reducing number of homeless veterans and the VA cut you know, the number of homeless veterans in half or even farther than that by really aggressively taking their, their uh, resources out in the community. So I, I'm hoping we could do something like that uh, in this work. Okay, so take us through how you, how you do this. What is your plan to do this? I, I assume that this is a new role within the Hudson Valley VA healthcare system, and, and you, of course, are, are brand new here. So how are you going about this? So this uh, this program, the Community Partnership uh, Coordinator Program, or the is new across the VA as a whole. It's only been around for about a year, year and a half, year and a half probably. It's a new position for the Hudson Valley VA. I'm the first one in it, so that's a great opportunity to be able to to build something. So what I'm really doing is uh, recognizing that like the VA needs partners. Um, the VA needs the experts in the community and the resources in the community to be able to do this work. I bring, you know, some technical expertise and some knowledge about suicide prevention and how to work in communities, but I know nothing about these communities. There are a lot of veterans and a lot of people who serve veterans in our community that do bring that expertise. So the idea is let's find them and work with them. So so what I really need to do is, and what I've been doing is let's have meetings with almost anybody and everybody who care about uh, preventing suicide among veterans. Let's learn about their ideas and more importantly, let's find out who's uh, willing to do something about it. Once we figure out who those people are and get their commitment, we're going to be forming these suicide prevention coalitions for veterans where we will basically, they'll be implementing some low cost, uh, high impact interventions in the way that makes sense for their community. So some of those are, you know, we need to be able to train folks to recognize warning signs and then what to do about it. And that, you know, that depends on the community, depends on who's in the community. Another thing is let's build connectedness. Let's create opportunities for veterans to build relationships, to have people that matter in their life. Again, like so different in Westchester County versus Sullivan County. And then finally, like one thing that's really interesting to me is uh, lethal means safety or gun safety, where the idea is that if we can get some space between somebody who's in mental health crises and the means to make a suicide attempt, we save their lives. So I've been working with uh, Orange County District Attorney's Office on that where we've been really engaging with firearms dealers and uh, sportsmen's clubs or, or gun clubs to, to try to work on that area. So it really depends on the community, but like we've kind of these, got these core interventions and, they, and the community members can figure out what, what they want to do where they're at. Before we get to final thoughts, I have to ask you under the heading of trivia sure. about the tag that uh, you included in your Bios of the uh, 3rd Infantry Division, U.S. Army, the Rock of the Marne. 
What is that? Sure. Uh, great question. So I was with the third infantry division, um, and in their yeah their motto is Rock of the Marne. So in World War One in 1918, the final German you know, offensive was pushing back everybody across the line. Like really, you know, allies were in retreat except at the Marne River, where the third infantry division was set up, and they kind of stopped the offensive. They they stood there like a rock in the river, unmoving and allowed the other forces to rally around them. So that's kind of where, where uh, that motto came from. All right, Carl, uh, final thoughts before sure. we leave you and also contact information, please. Great. All right, so final thoughts is uh, suicide prevention is everybody's business and everybody can make an impact. I think that we have a great community here and a lot of people motivated to help and they can make a difference. If you want to be part of that, you can give me a call or shoot me an email. My phone number is 914-454-0959. And my email address is carl, C-A-R-L dot Lofaro, L-O-F as in Frank, A-R-O at V-A dot gov. And I'd love to hear from anyone. I'd love to have a conversation, meet with people. I'd love to come and speak to your groups. Just uh, let me know what I can do, what I need to know. Well, Carl LaFaro, the new Community Engagement Partnership Coordinator for the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System, thank you so much for your time and being part of Let's Talk Vets on WJFF Radio Catskill. All right, thanks, Doug. Thanks for this program. It's great. And we're back as Let's Talk Vets continues on Radio Catskill WJFF. Getting treatment for mental illness is complicated on so many levels. The effects of moral injury are as contagious to friends and family and associates as any virus. A fundamental element of helping those with mental illness is understanding what they are facing. And Pat Ciano of NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, explains why this is so important. So Pat Ciano of NAMI, the National Association on Mental Illness, welcome to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invite. We're going to start with the beginning, and uh, I'm going to ask you to give us an overview of what NAMI is. Okay, so NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, it's the largest family-founded and oriented um, national organization, and it's specifically focused on families of people who have loved ones who live with mental illness. It started in the 70s with uh, two or three mothers who had sons with schizophrenia sitting around a kitchen table and demanding that their loved ones get better care. And it is now in 48 states, and we have affiliates in many, many counties throughout the country. We run family-to-family -family classes, which helps family members teach other family members skill sets to navigate the mental health services in the country, to be able to communicate better with their loved one. And the corollary to the family-to-family -family class is Homefront. And Homefront is the family-to-family -family class, but it's designed specifically for families of veterans and active duty so that they can understand 
their loved one, but the particularities of being in the military. So rather than a particular professional modality, um, NAMI seeks to provide a continuum of support around the person in a familiar setting. NAMI family-to-family and home-front classes are not meant to take away from or supplement um, any psychiatric or counseling services. It is educational classes that help the family members learn how to talk with their loved one. We teach how what your loved one is going through in terms of maybe if they're hearing voices, what does that feel like? How, you know, so we have an exercise that we do in our classes that stimulates hearing voices so that you can actually feel uh, your loved one is, is going through. We have a class on medications, which teaches about the side effects of medications and the different array of medications. We have a class that teaches about the different mental health conditions so that you can better understand if your loved one has a diagnosis or if they do not have a diagnosis, you might be able to hear certain things that you say, wow, that sounds like that might be that, and you might be able to help the practitioner, whether it be a psychiatrist or a therapist. So you can have a situation at home with people that better understand what you're going through as opposed to okay, come on, it's time for counseling, I'll drop you off. Correct. Being a family member myself, the frustration is that you've never been involved in anything about mental health before, and it's like a, it's almost like a foreign language, being in a foreign country. It has its own vocabulary. It has its own emotional mechanisms at work that you really do have to learn about. So let's drill down into NAMI Homefront. There's some things that are particular to veterans and those who are currently serving. PTSD, as we know it, has been called all sorts of different things over the years. Going back to the Civil War, it was called Soldier's Heart. It's been called Shell Shock and all these different things. What it really should be called is moral injury. And that is when um, something that you do or something you're involved with or something you see is so antithetical to everything you've been taught about right and wrong that it, 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 your brain and your conscience cannot reconcile. What do you teach to understand that? Uh... Well, it's, it's not so much that we teach the uniqueness of post-traumatic stress disorder. What, what we teach is how the family member can understand what their loved one is going through to be more em- empathetic. So we don't get into the detail of each of the like post-traumatic stress disorder. We go generally over the post-traumatic stress disorder, how it manifests itself, how the love, how your loved one can understand better why you're having nightmares, be there for the person in, in different ways than they have been, so that it's not so much a mystery, if, if, if you will. We do not do in-depth on any particular disease itself. The idea of going deeply into some of these actually sounds good to me. I may actually be referring that suggestion, Doug, 
to the national organization to see if we can begin to go more in depth into some of the you know issues like post traumatic stress disorder because now that we know post traumatic stress disorder or trauma is not only affecting the military PTSD is now a big thing in in society at large and my husband has taught me over time who he's a Viet, Vietnam war veteran that many many things start in the military and then 20 years later, 30 years later, whatever, we see it at large in, in society. Um, he worked in uh, communications where a lot of the technological things began that we see today. And so he's been able to see a lot of the connections come to fruition that he worked with. So the idea of teaching more deeply about post-traumatic stress disorder, I think is a great idea. If you're going to help family members and friends and caregivers understand what their loved ones are going through, you would ultimately have to understand the affliction or what you're helping them with or how can you help, right? Well, yes and no. Okay. There are ways in which we can help, such as the empathy training. In other words, if your loved one's hearing voices, right, what does that, what does that feel like? So we do a five-minute, seven-minute activity where we actually put the participants in the class in a situation where they're hearing voices and having to do an activity. Post-traumatic stress disorder is much different in terms of trying to teach people what it feels like to have post-traumatic stress disorder. However, having said that, there are so many new ideas of people having experienced post-traumatic stress disorder in their own lives such as car wrecks, sexual assaults, or, you know, the tornado that recently came through the Midwest. I personally now understand that I actually have some post-traumatic stress disorder from an incident that I did not even pay attention to uh, when I was teaching school. So the, the more we talk about it, the more people will understand that PTSD is out there among the general population as well as the military and veteran population and that we can begin to help understand that better when we are aware of the symptoms, when we're aware of what they're going through, when we're aware of uh, services that will help them, techniques that will help them and us deal with that more. So if we could briefly go down through some of the programs or a few of the headings, such as Ending the Silence, Family to Family, Family and Friends, Hearts and Minds, NAMI Homefront, we just talked about, in our own voices, peer to peer, and you also have a section for providers. Correct. The two prongs that are the major prongs of all the NAMI affiliates are the family services, which is family to family or home front for veterans and, and military population and our peer-to-peer work, which is family-to-family support and peer-to-peer support. And we also have a peer education class that parallels the family class. 
so that people who have mental health conditions and are stable can learn more about themselves and the mental health condition that they actually have. Them. And they can talk with each other about their frustrations. They can share with each other what has worked for them. And there's a community built over time, Doug, that I can't really articulate how it happens. And that is that the more people get to know you and the more that they hear other people expressing that they have the same feelings or the same kinds of experiences with their loved ones, there's a bond that begins to build, okay, from between total strangers. Wow, I didn't know anybody else felt that way besides me. Wow, you, you, you see that too? You, how, how do you deal with it? So people share information and share, um, you know, things across the board. And it, it, there's a bonding that happens over time within our classes, within our support groups and so forth. So we have other educational classes, like you said, provider classes, where we teach providers the family perspective, how families need to be involved with their, with their loved one's care because that's who they live with all the time, right? And so if the family is disconnected, they're not brought along and there's still a lot of, not animosity, but uh, antagonism, I guess is the better word, between the person who has the mental health condition and the family members who still don't understand what's going on. Ending the Silence program is our educational classes for middle and high school students, where we go into the school system and do a 45 minute presentation about mental health conditions, uh, talking about uh, stop, uh, stop the stigma, uh, stop the bullying, that's going on so that we sensitize the kids more to other people, to suicide prevention. All those components are then for in the, within the 45 minutes with the school systems. That class actually has a component for staff members, for family members of, of high school and middle school students, as well as the students themselves. Have you done some of these uh, presentations in the school system? Yes, I have. Uh-huh. Yeah. In well, Orange that, County. That's got to yeah. be important. So, I mean, with the recent tragedy in Michigan in mind, where evidently this particular young man had some issues, he was it was brought to the office to the parents more than once from what I understand. I mean, when you're talking about understanding this stuff, are you also putting out there, you know, signs to look for, things to look for? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We, we teach br very briefly um, in those classes for the students, we teach very briefly what are some of the signs um, uh, that your um, kids will ask. I'm anxious. What's the difference between being anxious about a test and having anxiety? And what we basically tell them is if you have anxiety about a test, it will go away after the test. If you have anxiety issues and you need to see someone to see if it might be a problem or not or get some help, those issues will last for at least two weeks consistently. And if they last two weeks consistently, that doesn't mean you have a mental health condition, but it does mean you need to check in with someone and discuss those issues with someone to see if there's something that can be done either medically or therapy or just some suggestions like getting a pet you know, having a plant in the in your room that you take care of every day. Some of the simple things are art therapy. So there's different levels and we just encourage our students to check themselves and their fellow students. And if there's an issue that's going on that's severe enough that it lasts for two solid weeks, they just need to check in with 
a trusted adult, and we say a trusted adult can be anyone that you trust and ask them to help you find some help. Um, most of the time, of course, that kids will go to their favorite teacher, someone that they have a relationship with in the school system, which is fine. And that's where that's where most kids will go. And, and but other kids may not may feel alienated. They may want to go to a neighbor. They may want to talk to Aunt Susie or Uncle John, you know what I mean, um, who they feel close to. So in your experience with uh, peers and family members and, and, and those with various afflictions over the years, how has the isolation created by COVID and the school lockdowns and the distance learning compounded these issues? Well, I think in two ways. Number one, it's made the issues worse with those who have the issues because isolation and separation from people worsens any kind of a mental issue, in my opinion. And I think that that's what's coming out in the news and, and the studies over the last 18 months. The second thing is it has drawn the national attention to mental health issues in a way that I don't believe anything else I've seen in my lifetime has been able to draw attention to mental health issues. One of the biggest problems I see is the transition from military to civilian. And the the military does not approach the transition, it seems, in the same patent manner and the same process as they do bringing people in and transforming them from civilian to military. And a lot of these folks, when they get out, they, they've changed. We've all changed. The people that they grew up with have changed as well. And both sides don't understand each other. And they come back and they say, well, who am I now? It's funny you should say that, Doug, because I just finished uh, listening to a call that, that NAMI has nationally with people who do home front work. And it appears to me that not only do they not involve us, but it's very hard to even get the attention of the Veterans Administration or the uh, bases where people are actively deployed uh, in the country or around the world. In the last century, we had lots of organizations who would work up and down um, in kind of a military style where you answer up the organization, you answer down the organization, and if the top of the organization decides we will work with someone else, then the whole organization works with someone else, and, and, and if not, then you don't, okay? What has been happening in the first part of this century, I believe, is that a lot of those silos are beginning to break down in the general population where we are working side by side with other people that are members of other organizations on issues that people are concerned about. Unfortunately, I believe that because of the military, the necessity of the military being very siloed and very linear in terms of orders coming down from the top and people needing to follow those orders, right? So that I believe that the intensity of the military structure forces the, the, the silo mentality more so than in any other organization in the country. So it's, it's difficult for people who are not seen as part of the military structure to break into that. The one thing that I have loved about being on the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force that I met you on is that it does begin to help break down those silos, but we have not been able to actually figure out a way to successfully 
do that with the VA or the military Department of Defense and in any of those other structures in any kind of significant way. One of the bullet points on your website is mental health initiatives in the black and Latinx communities. What's unique about what you do to those communities? Well, I will say to you that the uniqueness to any community, such as the veteran community or the black community or the Latinx community, right, is that you need to have people from those communities speaking to those communities. So in the black community, we want to have people of color that have that lived experience, that have gone through those issues working in that community, the Latinx the same way, people who speak the language, people who understand the culture. And so it's really a parallel thing to the veterans, um, if you will, in that it's a cultural thing, right? There's a culture to being in the military. There is a culture that people who are not in the military do not understand. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. All right. I want to know who Pat Ciano is and how did you become involved in NAMI? Okay. Well, Pat Ciano is a senior American, let's put it that way, whose son had a psychotic bipolar break with reality about, we're coming up on six years ago. He was married, has two kids, um, and it turned our world upside down, I guess is the best way to to describe it. And in, in many ways, our world is still turned upside down because he refuses to get help. And so initially, I was totally lost. And someone came to my rescue. And that person happened to be the NAMI president um, and referred me to NAMI. And I took the family to family class. And I said, Oh, my God, this is what I have to do the rest of my life. Because I have a master's degree. I've been a teacher. I've been a union representative. I've on a national scale. I've negotiated contracts with chief justices of Supreme Court. You know, I mean, I have a lot of skill set. A lot of people don't have that skill set. They don't have that 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 self-assurance. To, and if I was lost, if I was lost, I can't even begin to imagine how other families feel when something similar happens to their family. So it was it was that whole experience, and within. I went to the NAMI National Convention, and I was just convinced that NAMI was where I needed to be. It fit who I was as a family member. Everybody's experiences were parallel to mine. It was just like coming home once I had that experience in my own family. On the last Veterans Task Force, I believe it was you that told the story about um, talking with somebody, I think was in Florida, who was having some issues, and you reached out to the NAMI element down there and they immediately got in touch and, and helped out the situation. Yeah, that's the other strength of NAMI is that it's like I have friends that I don't know all around the country. So my cousin lived in Panama City and I called her to check in on her one day and did not know that she had, had lived with a mental health condition her entire life and she was just a basket case crying and uh, said that she her medicines weren't working. She didn't like her psychiatrist. He didn't understand her, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, sweetheart, I want you to hold on just a minute. Let me get off the phone. I want to make some phone calls and see if I can get you some help. Now, I'm in New York. She's in Panama City. So I looked up online the NAMI um, drop-down menu for state and local affiliates. I found the Panama City phone number. I called the Panama City phone number and got the president um, immediately, didn't even go to voicemail, and I explained the situation. She got, I gave her my cousin's number. 
She called her within 15 minutes. My cousin had been connected to the local NAMI in Panama City. She said, oh, yes, we recognize that psychiatrist. We have others that we can recommend to her and uh, help her out. And I said, that's wonderful. So that's the other strength of NAMI is actually being able to reach out to other areas. The other silver lining in the COVID cloud is that we're doing more things virtually now. So my home front class in January has someone from Florida, someone from Oregon. We can now help more people in more ways than we were ever able to do that before. So if folks listening uh, would like to get in touch with NAMI to help out. It, the website, the national website is NAMI.org, O-R-G. Locally here in the Hudson Valley, we have NAMI Orange, New York. We have NAMI Sullivan. We have NAMI Mid-Hudson, that is Ulster and Duchess. And we have NAMI Putnam and we have NAMI Westchester. So each organization has its own website, but if you go to NAMI.org is the national website, you can find any and all of us. Okay, and if folks want to volunteer or to donate uh, time or resources, money perhaps, how do they do that? There's a donate button on everybody's website. So it's easy to donate to NAMI National. NAMI.org, or it's easy to donate to any of the affiliates, the local affiliates with the donate button. Um, if they want to remain anonymous, that's fine. Or if they want to join in as a member, we have uh, three levels of membership. We have the full family membership, which is $60 a year. We have an individual membership, which is $40 a year. And then we have um, a $5 membership that is no questions asked. And if that's all you can afford and that you want to join with us, you put in your $5 and you're a member. And that is designed specifically for people who have mental health conditions, but also anyone who is in low income areas and that cannot afford the higher membership fees. So yes, you can donate and you can join and we would love to have any and all come come in with us. Now, if you wanted to volunteer and, and actually do the work boots on the ground like you do is uh, how do we go about that? Well, first you have to become a member and then you have to take the class itself. And then once you take the class, you t tell the, you know, the, the uh, person who led the class that you would like to become a presenter or um, a leader of, of that class and sign up then with the New York State or whatever state organization that you are a member of. And they give the trainings once or twice a year. It's not often, but you will be in line then to take the, the trainings to then become a presenter like myself. Okay. Pat Ciano, thank you so much for your time and talking about this very important topic for our audience on Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill. Thanks, Doug. We appreciate it. Well, Larry Winters is a great friend of this program. He's a Vietnam vet, mental health professional, prolific writer, and a great storyteller. We have aired his writing on earlier programs, and tonight we're pleased to bring you his latest contribution. Listen closely as Larry unravels the psychological layers of his struggle to deal with his internal conflict and heal the moral injuries he sustained in Vietnam. Black. Peace Eagle, my vision quest name. 
help me understand. Black peace eagles are cleaner uppers of our battlefields. Seldom do they kill for food, but feed upon the dead, keeping our lands free of disease. Those lessons have become my reach. After my vision quest naming and the Earth Tribe, my focus became returning veterans from our current wars. Vets using substances to kill their battlefield pains with addiction. Vets who were infecting their families, friends, and communities with the contagious virus of war, which often led to suicide. I awoke to the truth that civilians continue to struggle with the after effects of our wars. Civilians do not know what to say to veterans whose actions in war profoundly affect all of us. The new name gave me great expectations, but soon I found that the sky was not blue and that the leaves were not green. Nature is a panoply of shades, as is the human psyche. Yet, I still hope to find justifications for fighting in an unjust war. My vision quest led me to understand the inner battlefield of the boy who went to war and came home with many more selves than he left with. The boy has grown into an elder man, and those echoes of war have become my second heartbeat. And I know they will last to the end of my living. My many selves are still standing on my internal battlefield. One self often tells me he still feels self-blame for going to war. Another mentions things I did to take life in war. A third reminds me of how I behaved after coming home. Finally, the quiet self speaks, who has been waiting for my attention. He gives me examples of how I spread the war virus to my wife and son. These dialogues still stir hurt, yet now I can look internally skyward and see black peace eagles. They have helped me to understand the power of being victimized and how it calls attention to a legitimate place to stand. This attention is powerful and addictive and creates healing expectations from others outside myself. I have reached the age of an elder and have begun to befriend the multiple me's born in different phases of my life. I have thanked each self for helping to bring balance into my recovery from war. I am learning not to listen only to the victim's voice. It has drowned out my other internal voices for too long. Focusing on being a victim has prevented me from healing from the moral injuries of war. 
the Ukraine war. I have been handed many books in my lifetime. I memorized only one. It did not come from the library and I wasn't given it in school or church. Its title is War in My Soul. I've tried to tear out its pages. I've written profusely in its margins. I've just reached a new chapter, the Ukraine War, and concluded that wars might never end during human existence unless we can allow black peace eagles into the battlefields we have created within. I pray for black peace eagles to consume what war has spoiled in me. Go well, black peace eagles. Our thanks tonight to Carla Farrell, Community Engagement Partnership Coordinator, Suicide Prevention VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System. To Pat Ciano of NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And to Larry Winters, Vietnam vet, mental health professional, author, and raconteur extraordinaire. And of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends and family know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we can talk about them on the air. You can always drop me an email at vets at wjffradio.org. And don't forget, if you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or need to speak to someone, here's a couple of numbers for you. Veterans Crisis Line 800-273-8255. Press 1 to talk to someone. You can send a text message to 838255 to connect with a VA responder. Or you can start a confidential online chat session at Veterans Crisis Line, one word, dot net slash chat. And don't forget that this program, Let's Talk Vets, is now widely available as a podcast. Until our next formation, thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed.